0: Good morning. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, I'm sure parents will be coming up in just a moment, uh, but why don't we say a quick prayer just to give our focus to God before we get into our message, uh, and then we'll go from there. So bow with me and pray. Father in heaven, uh, God, I just pray that you'd be with me as I I communicate your word. I pray, Father, that you give us ears to hear. uh, Give us hearts that Uh, really strive to grasp what your word has to say to us, and I pray, Lord, that you uh, just help each of us to give you our undivided attention as uh, we listen to the sermon today. Please bless us, bless the kids that are downstairs and off to camp, and we're just grateful for this time to be together as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You guys can go ahead, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. And the title of my message today is Growing Oaks, which actually comes from uh, a passage in the Bible that uh, we're gonna, is going to be the theme for our message today. And this last Sunday, I was actually out of town. Somebody already asked me where I was last Sunday. I wasn't here, uh, but I was on a five-day personal retreat to be with God, to pray, to read my Bible, to, to just spend time sort of refreshing. I guess retreats are sort of a thing that we do around here. Uh, if you know Joel at all. and uh, So I had a a personal retreat. Actually, I think it's the only retreat that length of time that I've ever taken in my Christian life. And I took it at this place called Gnarly Oaks. Uh, My wife, for uh, Father's Day and my birthday, uh, planned out this retreat for me and set me up to go off to Norwalk, Wisconsin, and uh, be at this uh, home that's called Gnarly Oaks, or affectionately called Gnarly Oaks, It's this uh, home that a couple built, I think, in the early 2000s, uh, so not too long ago, but it's built on 48 acres of land. Uh, And actually, uh, going up to the home, I think you have to drive up like a half mile or a quarter of a mile uh, driveway up this hill to this really... A high hilltop where the home is built, and as you look off, uh, all you see is these rolling hills of Wisconsin, of cornfields and trees, and it's just a beautiful uh, place to take a retreat and to be alone. And uh, so, I went to this retreat uh, at Gnarly Oaks, and it prompted as uh, somewhere along the way. It stumbled across this passage in Isaiah 61, uh, which I want to share with you guys in just a moment. But if you know. Joel Pete, at all. You know that he goes on these retreats. And my sense is that when Joel goes on a retreat, it's like when he comes back, he's like stepping out of a cloud of heaven uh, and he's just filled with all of this grand vision and all is well in the world and everything uh, is just incredible. And as he's walking off to his truck, he's, you know, talking to Jesus. Hey, text me about that thing later and we'll catch up. Uh, but that was not, I had a great retreat. That was not necessarily how I came back from my retreat. Uh, to be quite honest, uh, I would tell you that one of the things early on in my retreat that I, uh, actually I wasn't even out of Eau Claire. I stopped at a coffee shop. And I think the thing that struck me uh, and was kind of a thread throughout my entire retreat is that I felt like I have a lot of anger inside of me. And that was kind of the, the theme that I think I was trying to really dig into what has maybe been simmering under in my heart for a while that maybe I just haven't had the time to really think about, to address? I think there's probably some reasons why I felt some of the anger, but I also think there's some, some areas of where my heart was going that wasn't good, and I think it was just being confronted with my own sin and brokenness, and that's never fun to do that, because uh, you're kind of going off and you're you know basically stirring up the pond and getting all the muck that is coming up, right? Uh, and so... Uh, I was sort of confronted with that. And then coming back, I was driving back to Eau Claire. And uh, as I'm driving back, I'm feeling a lot like I don't feel like I'm really resolved necessarily. I think I've thought a lot about this. I've prayed a lot about this. uh, But I'm just like hoping for before I hit my front door, I want something to be in a lot better place than where I was. Uh, And so I'm driving and I'm thinking at any moment there's going to be like this wave of peace that will like come over me. Uh, All will be well because I know that what's going to happen is my wife is going to be very excited and my kids are going to be very excited to see me and the emotional temperature in the room is going to be very good on their end. And I'm coming there and having to say it was good, but I feel like I have some caveats and some asterisks at the end of that. Uh, if you've ever had that feeling of everybody else seems really happy and excited, uh, but I don't necessarily feel like I'm there quite yet—that's not a good place to be. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I didn't cry at all on my retreat. But I think within the first hour, I think I was telling my wife and just starting to to just cry about. I just feel like I'm broken. I feel like I'm <laughs> feel like I'm broken. So, um, so that was a, a summary of a little bit of my retreat. Now, that, as I said, Gnarly Oaks had me thinking about this passage that we're going to get in, which is all about restoring the broken. And uh, there's this thing I, I heard about, actually, from a sister in Milwaukee. Uh, she's sort of in the design or art world, and she, she described uh, this Japanese art form that's known as kintsugi, which means uh, golden joinery, uh, and it's basically the idea of you take this broken pottery... Uh, And instead of discarding the broken pottery or even disguising the brokenness, you actually uh, take this lacquer that's dusted with gold and you piece together the broken pieces so that what comes out of it is something much more beautiful than what you began with. Uh, And so the brokenness actually becomes sort of a feature uh, or a mark of its restoration. And uh, as we're going to look at in Isaiah 61, uh, God is an expert at restoring the broken. Uh, The prophet Isaiah is this prophet, 750 years or so before the time of Christ, uh, and we read in Isaiah chapter 61, it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Now, I didn't read the end of verse 3 there, uh, but in Isaiah chapter 60, the chapter right before this, it talks all about what the good things are that God wants to do for his people. It's this glorious picture of all these incredibly incredible blessings that God wants to deliver to his people. And in Isaiah 61, it tells us who is going to be the one that delivers them. And so as you read it, you want to highlight me, because the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Now, not me as in me, but If we know the Gospels well, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus quotes this very passage, and as he does it, he says that this passage is fulfilled in your hearing, and it says that the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. It's like as Jesus quoted this passage, and he was, was pointing to himself being the one that would actually deliver these blessings, it's like people's eyes were fastened on him, and so we, as we read it, our eyebrows should go up, our jaws should hit the ground, and we should be amazed at what Jesus is saying. And so he tells us that Jesus is this anointed one that would deliver these blessings to his people. And then he tells us what he would do. Well, he's going to proclaim good news. And what is the good news? Well, he's going to bind up the brokenhearted. He's going to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. He's going to comfort those who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. This is what the anointed one that Isaiah spoke of that that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus this is what he would come to do for his people. And then it talks about this remarkable transformation of what would happen. Well, what's going to happen is uh, beauty is going to be, or sorry, ashes is going to be turned to beauty. Joy will be, or mourning will become joy. Praise or despair, I'm mixing up everyone, So uh, despair will become praise. But Isaiah, as he talks about it, it's like he's just stacking up these terms, just piling it up so that you can see the incredible contrast between the current reality of God's people and what this anointed one would ultimately come and do, that he would bind up the brokenhearted. He would bring joy. He would bring this garment of praise. This remarkable thing would happen that we see Jesus ultimately fulfilling. And then it says at the end of verse 3, so we know what the anointed one would come and do, but now we know what the people of God will be as a result and he says they will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of the lord for the display of his splendor now that's a remarkable statement you know these oaks of righteousness the people that isaiah was speaking to they were not at that moment oaks of righteousness they were broken hearted They were mourning, they were captives, they were prisoners of darkness. Uh, They were not, at that moment, these incredible oaks of righteousness that Isaiah, uh, the people that Isaiah was talking to. In fact, what they were, if you look through the book of Isaiah, were these ugly stumps of unrighteousness. They were supposed to be the people of God. They were supposed to be uh, something much different, but as a result, Israel had failed, the nation had failed. And that God is looking at these people saying, look, I will make you oaks of righteousness. In other words, you will be this picture of stability and strength and longevity and permanence. You will be these oaks of righteousness, even though right now you're a mess. I will declare you righteous. He says, a planting of the Lord. And that brings to mind, as you think about some of the images in the Bible, it brings to mind uh, the idea of a vineyard, a planting of the Lord, a fruitful vine, uh, which is over and over throughout the Bible in the Old Testament, the vine is a, an image of God's people. And it was meant to, to be a vine that, that bears fruit. And throughout Uh, You know, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, it often talks about how this vineyard is this desolate wasteland. In fact, you can look in Isaiah 5 and you could find out where it says that God was going to dig up and clear out and he's looking for this vineyard that's going to have good fruit and yet he found only bad fruit. And yet now he's saying there'll be oaks of righteousness, this planting of the Lord. And instead of what you're currently displaying, Israel in Isaiah's day, this this unrighteousness you will display the splendor of God you will be this picture of strength and stability and 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 righteousness you know you don't become an oak tree overnight oak trees take a while to to grow right and you know if you were to look around an oak tree you might find lots of mushrooms and things like that those might grow overnight or Right, you could go up to a mushroom and you could just flick it with your finger and it'll knock right over. Try doing that to an oak tree. It's not gonna work so easy. And yet, God is saying that I'm gonna make you this oak of righteousness. And so here's what I want to think about as we talk about the rest of this message. How does somebody endure the valleys to become an oak? If you think about these people that God is telling you will be these oaks of righteousness, at the moment, they weren't, right? At the moment, they were brokenhearted, mourning, they were captives, prisoners. That's who he was speaking to, and yet there was this vision of what they would ultimately become. And so how does someone endure the valleys? Well, ultimately, it's putting your hope in God and his anointed one. It's drawing close to him. And so what I want to do, Over the rest of our messages, I'm just going to give you a running commentary of some passages that hopefully will communicate something about what God's heart is all about. So I want you to know more about God's heart, the deepest part of who God is. I want you to be drawn to that, to understand that, because you're going to need that when you go through your brokenhearted moments. You're going to need to know who God is. In Lamentations chapter 3, I won't give you this whole passage here. Lamentations, most likely written by the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, they, were called to be, uh, they were called to be this great nation, right? God, the living God, was their covenant God. And uh, they were called to be this nation that was, was God's own special possession, and that God would bless them, and God would bless the rest of the world through them. And yet, as Lamentations is written, the nation has been ransacked, Jerusalem has been ransacked, the temple uh, has been destroyed, it is in ruin, and so we have this book called Lamentations lamenting what has gone on. And one of the striking things as you read through the book of Lamentations is you'll read this phrase that says something like, uh, there's no one who hears. Isn't that difficult when you feel like you're going through a difficult time and you feel like nobody else gets it? Nobody hears. Nobody cares. Now, Lamentations, what's interesting about it is the first two chapters each have 22 verses. The verses were added much later. Uh, The last two chapters each have 22 verses. The middle chapter, chapter 3, has 66 verses. So the verse that's on the screen is the middle of the entire book. In other words, what that means is this passage is the theological bullseye of the whole book of Lamentations. It is something about God you need to know when you go through difficult times. It may not be as dramatic as what uh, Israel was going through in their day, but I'm guessing it'll feel just as dramatic to you in the moment. And what it says is for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. That God, if you look in another translation, it says he doesn't bring affliction from his heart. It's kind of an interesting passage. Because what it's essentially saying is God does not delight, God does bring affliction into our life. God does discipline us from time to time, but God does not do it as though he delights in that. God is not, like, eager to discipline or punish or or judge. He's not eager to do any of that. And you think about a parent. When we give our kids gifts for Christmas, they're not, as they're opening up this gift very excitedly, I'm not nudging my wife, like, I can't wait to take that away from them. They're so, I can't wait to see the look on their face when I snatch that out of their hands and say, they're not going to get that anymore. God doesn't bring affliction from the heart. Now, let's contrast that with some other passages. How about uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 41? I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. So, what God is excited about doing, What God's heart is to do good things. It's like what gushes forward out of God's heart is I want to bless my people. I want to take care of my people. Uh, Here's another interesting one. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21. I love this. It says, the Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work. His strange work and perform his task, his alien task. What is God's strange work? Well, the context of that passage is discipline and judgment of Ephraim and so forth. So, what is God's, what is strange? To God, What's his alien task? Now, people sometimes say things like, well, God of the Old Testament is just mean, and uh, he's just like judging the nations, and he's just doing all of these like horrible things in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he's really like kind of, he's just kind of chipper. He's got a better attitude. Nope. Actually... We do read about God disciplining his people. We do read about God disciplining and judging nations. We read about all of those things, but that is his strange work. What is his natural thing to do? What, like, gushes forth out of God's heart? Compassion, grace, mercy. He desires to do good things in your life. How about Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 to 7? And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, if you think that I'm just sort of plucking this passage out of the Bible and just kind of using it for my own purposes, read through the whole Bible. Because you will find this same language describing God's heart over and over and over again. He is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That is God's own heart for his people. Compassion. This is, one Old Testament scholar described this passage as it is a highly stylized description of God's heart. It is something that, it became the Israelites' credo. It was their kind of core belief about who God is because as they looked around, this is all we know of God. He is compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. You know, it's interesting. We sang in the song, 10,000 Reasons, we sang the line, He is rich in love and slow to anger. That's who God is. And the phrase, slow to anger, in the Bible, It means that God is long-nosed. Kind of a strange image, but the idea is, if you think about like a bull in a stall, locked up, and he's getting angry and wants to get out, and so that's short-nosed. That's, you know, pawing away at the dirt. That's huffing and puffing, and so when you release the gate, guess what happens? He just charges out. That's not God, though. God is slow to anger. It's interesting, you'll read throughout the Bible over and over, you'll read this language of God being uh, provoked to anger. You'll never read about God being provoked to love. Read through the entire Bible. You will never read about God being provoked to mercy because he doesn't need to be provoked. That's what God is eager to do. He just wants to gush forth love and compassion and mercy. That's how God thinks about us. So he's provoked to anger, but he's naturally loving, compassionate, eager to do that. Anytime he gets angry, of course, we know that his anger is controlled, it's righteous, it's good. Uh, God is right to feel some of those things. Uh, But as we think about human beings in contrast, actually humans tend to be easily angered. We, don't, we are the ones that actually don't need to be provoked to anger. It just sort of comes naturally. We get frustrated. Uh, we get irritable. But on the other hand, read Hebrews 10, and it tells us to spur one another on. In other words, provoke one another towards love and good deeds. We're the ones that need to be provoked to love. God naturally does it. That's who he is. But we go to the New Testament, Luke chapter fifteen. We'll end with this story, the parable of the prodigal son. This is actually the parable that I actually started out my retreat reading, and uh, actually Thursday is when I left on my retreat. I couldn't check in at Gnarly Oaks until three p.m., uh, but I left much earlier in the day, and. Uh, I woke up, I didn't even get out of my bed yet, and this passage was on my mind. I was already thinking about it throughout the day, and so it was really natural when I got to a coffee shop just, you know, on the outskirts of Eau Claire, uh, to spend my time reading this story of the prodigal son and thinking about what it's communicating about who God is. And as you think about it, at the end of Luke chapter 14, so the chapter earlier, Jesus lays out what we know as the cost of discipleship. Uh, the cost, or the decision of being a disciple. And at the end of that section, uh, what Jesus says is, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, at the very beginning of Luke 15, so right after Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear, it's interesting what it says. It says, uh, I'll just read it from my notes here. It says that the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear Him. So, Right away, what we find is it's not the people we think would naturally be gathering around Jesus to hear him, and the people that are actually doing the thing that Jesus said are the most unlikely people, and as a result, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the the Jewish religious establishment, are grumbling, they're muttering, they're complaining about this man welcomes sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus probably could have just nudged him and said, actually, correction, like, I'm welcoming the people that hear. It just so happens the sinners and the tax collectors actually care to hear what I'm saying. They're recognizing who I am. And he launches into these stories, these parables, right? The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. Uh, It's describing what God's heart is all about, and he's saying, actually, the people these Pharisees and teachers of the law, the ones who had the most impressive knowledge of God's law had the least impressive knowledge of God's heart. That ought to be a caution. Now, it certainly shouldn't lead us to go, hey, I guess I don't need to read my Bible. It should make us go, we should read our Bible very carefully because what we need to know more than anything is the heart that God has for his people. That's what we need. And so it goes on as we read this story about the prodigal son. Uh, you know, the younger son, we know he asked for his share of the inheritance. That was an insulting request, but one in which, shockingly, the father uh, actually complies. Uh, the younger son then sets off for this distant country, squanders his wealth in wild living Uh, I think the question I ask myself is, what would we do in the absence of accountability and oversight when we go off to our distant country, so to speak? How do we behave? After he he spent everything, there is this severe famine that we read about, and he began to be in need. And when we stray from God, we tend not to see the famine that is right around the corner. We get casual, we get careless, we get reckless about our spiritual life, and what we don't see in that moment is right around the corner are some challenges that I didn't foresee. And you begin to be in need, a need that only God is going to be able to meet. And now we get to focus on this vivid picture of God's heart. Verse 20, it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. and is alive again. He was lost and his found, so they began to celebrate. You know, the younger son never finished his scripted speech. He had planned what he was going to say as he came back to his father, but he never even finished it because the father's urgent response seems to indicate, like, hey, never mind that whole servant stuff. He seems to just quickly go to, let me give you A robe, which would have been given to a guest of honor. A ring, which would have signified authority. Sandals, which were those in their world that would be given to a free man. And then on top of all that, let's get the calf that has been fattened for some time, for some special occasion, and there's no more special occasion than this right now because my son is back. It goes on and it says, Meanwhile... But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Oh, I guess that's the last line there, huh? Um, As we think about this story, the older son is actually what caught me. He was angry and refused to go in. That's what I think needs to be dealt with and needed to be dealt with on my retreat, that I resonated quite a bit or related quite a bit with this older son. You know, the outward circumstances with each son were different, but one could argue that the inward heart that each son had had a lot of similarities. Both sons were selfish. The younger wanted his father dead, That's basically what you're saying when you ask for your living father's inheritance. And he wanted his father out of his life so that he could live without restraint and self-indulge, even if it meant squandering his fortune. In his mind, life is meant to be enjoyed, even if it's without the people who most care about you. You only live once. Do what makes you happy. That's the spirit of the younger son. The older son kept up appearances followed social protocol, had no glaring weaknesses, but in his heart of hearts, he just wanted a good time with his friends. And in his mind, his father was there to serve his selfish interests and no more. What's amazing is he said, I want a young goat for my friends. Apparently a young goat is what you get when you want to have a good time. There's no mention of the father. I just want to go off and be with my friends, and I want the Father to give me what I want. Now, both sons were distant. The younger went to a distant country, but the older remained in the same country, worked on the same estate, returned from the same fields to the same home with the same father, but he was every bit as distant in terms of his relationship with the Father and maybe even more so. The older son's story is left without an ending. And maybe because the Pharisees in Jesus' day and every rule-following churchgoer in our own day are meant to write the end of the story. Will we come in to celebrate? Will we respond to God's deepest desire to be close with you? You know, which son are you? As you think about this parable, where are you in the parable? I said, for me, I I related with the older son. The younger decidedly set off for a distant country away from God. Or are you the older that's maybe cluttering your life with religious, busy activity only to maintain a cold and distant relationship with God? On the journey that the prodigal son makes back to God, where are you? Are you recognizing your need for God and beginning to come to your senses Or are you in the process of coming to God or coming again and drawing close to Him? Are you enjoying an ongoing, ever-deepening, and meaningful relationship with God? That's what God wants for each of us. And the scary and the ironic thing about this story is that the sinners and the tax collectors were more on pace of becoming what Isaiah 61 talked about than the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And the younger son is seemingly more on track to become this oak of righteousness than the older son. And it clearly was not because their life was less of a mess, but because they came to Jesus. That's the key to enduring valleys. That's the key to restoration after our sin and brokenness. And it's the key to becoming an oak of righteousness is coming to God. And it's coming to get the right picture of who He is, that He's our gracious, compassionate, compassionate, eager to reconcile, eager to restore, eager to celebrate with us kind of God. So let's think about that as we take the Lord's Supper and are reminded of the work that the Anointed One did for our sin.